Welcome to Tip of the Tongue, a podcast on the Nitty Grits Network, where we explore the intersection of food and drink and museums. This is Liz Williams. We are here today at the Smithsonian's National Museum of American History. With us is Ashley Rose Young, historian of the American Food History Project. Welcome to Tip of the Tongue. I'm so glad to be here, Liz. Thanks for inviting me to chat today with you about all things food. So while we're here, let's acknowledge to everybody that we've known each other for quite a while and that there was recently an Eater article about you that talked about your experiences and how you got here. And so why don't you give us a, a brief version of that? <laughs> yeah, sure thing. So the Eater article came out as part of the Young Guns profiles on Eater.com and that's, you know, interviews with chefs, restaurateurs, writers, historians, who are kind of shaping the food world in some way, shape, or form. And so I'm doing that from a particularly uh, interesting angle in that I'm looking at U.S. history through the lens of food, right? And you might ask, how does someone become a food historian? And really, it almost seems as if this job were faded for me when I was young. My mom was a food entrepreneur in Western Pennsylvania. She and my two aunts owned and operated three gourmet grocery food stores. And I grew up in those stores, you know, three years old. They had me behind the counter <laughs> pouring tomato sauce onto our beautiful, you know, Italian crust pizzas helping our staff members and our community members put that in the oven and soon graduated, as I said, to the bakery department where I helped my mom bake pies and cookies, sometimes at one, two, three in the morning before a big rush around Thanksgiving or another holiday. But I really grew up in the food industry surrounded by really strong entrepreneurial women who were in a male-dominated world. I mean, many of the people who own grocery stores are men. And so there was something I didn't even know at that time, but that was such a formative experience later on when I came to focus my research largely on women food entrepreneurs and small business owners. And the other side of things, my father was a high school history teacher and a trained historian. And so I grew up going across the country to historic sites, national parks. I grew up in Pittsburgh, so we would drive down to the National Mall and visit the Smithsonian Museums, including the one that we're sitting in right now. And so I just had a love of history, of public-facing history. Museums, as we know, are just such wonderful uh, spaces to interact with people of all ages, of, of so many kinds of diversity. And so along the way, those kind of influences from my past came together when I interned at the Southern <laughs> Food and Beverage Museum when I was in college. And that's when I met you, Liz, and when you were kind enough, kind enough to let me, you know, stay with you in that summer and intern at the museum. And it was that freedom you gave me to work on exhibits, to help with the kids' culinary camp, to start cataloging papers that had been donated to the museum, to, to help Joe run the gift shop at the front <laughs> of the museum. All of that just made me fall in love with the museum environment, with a food museum environment, and also realized that I could study history through the lens of food. 
you helped me understand and realize that that could be a real vocation. So, And I always felt like we just made it up. <laughs> <laughs> and that's the fun part of it, right? <laughs> and here we are years later. <laughs> and so tell me about working here at the Smithsonian, which of course is the quintessential museum in the United States. So I'm very lucky to have come along at a time when the National Museum of American History had a very robust public programming presence and exhibition around food history. So we do have Julia Child's Cambridge, Massachusetts kitchen here, which which is the landmark object for our larger food exhibit, Food Transforming the American Table. And that really looks at cultural and technological changes from 1950 to the present. So fairly modern history, for me anyway, because my specialty lies in the long 19th century. So I'm looking at things for my book project, for example, that go back to 1698 even. I mean, this is a really long 19th century, but through around 1950. And so that exhibit, I came on to work here with the curatorial team to help conduct field work, to go out and find and share new stories, particularly highlighting diverse voices. So I worked with Paula Johnson and Steve Velasquez, who are both curators here at the museum, and we worked on a case called The Migrants Table. And we had already had very strong multi-year relationships with food entrepreneurs in the D.C. area and beyond who came to this country after 1964. And we really wanted to show their entrepreneurial spirit, the tenacity they showed, their perseverance despite racial, ethnic discrimination, and how they found an economic toehold and built family support through their food entrepreneurship. So did you discover that there was almost always a group of food entrepreneurs in almost every ethnic group that came over? Well, that's a great question. I think labor labor opportunities, I think more in terms of gender. So I do see a great diversity in terms of the migrant communities who have come over to start small shops, restaurants, whatnot. I see, for example, in our case, we have a Chinese, two Chinese companies represented, as well as a Guatemalan story. We have a story related to Ethiopia, for example, and others. But there are some stories in that exhibition case that are tied more to the home as a central point of the community than like an outward facing business. Uh, Pakistani, a Pakistani family, we have one of their beautiful platters on display in that exhibition. And so you might find in DC, for example, that there are not many Pakistani restaurants in relation to say, maybe Ethiopian restaurants because DC has an incredibly, relatively large Ethiopian population, you know, starting in the 1970s, it grew exponentially. And DC is one of the best places I think to eat Ethiopian food here in the United States. So that's to get back to this point of, okay, who's opening restaurants or not based on where they're coming from. And I really think that depends on patterns of migration and who ended up where, because in Pittsburgh, you know, there are very few Ethiopian restaurants where I grew up, but here in DC, there's this beautiful array of them both in the city and in the suburbs. I think that there have to be enough new immigrants to support the restaurant because they're the people who would go there first 
and then if it can be then successful, then other people can learn to enjoy that food. Right. But if unless you are coming from a country where there already is an established predilection for that particular kind of food, then you probably won't have early early testers or experimenters unless you have a large base of other immigrants. Exactly. Exactly. And, you know, we had a live cooking demonstration here for Smithsonian Food History Weekend last year in 2019. And Genevieve Villamora of Bad Saint, one of our most popular Filipino restaurants in D.C., she's a co-owner. She was talking about on stage during this demo, you know, she had this question of, well, why aren't there more Filipino restaurants in the United States? There's a substantial population here. Why is it that in her experience growing up, there really wasn't as broad of a presence as you might see with other migrant communities? And she had this really poignant thought, which was that English was spoken in the Philippines by many people. And so when a Filipino person migrated to the U.S., they had English as a skill set in in the you know as part of their skill set and we're able to go directly into you know other jobs, kinds of jobs. exactly mm-hmm. that didn't have a language barrier barrier in place whereas you know someone coming from a different part of the world that may not have had exposure to english one of the ways that you can start finding labor and building opportunity for yourself is through the food industry because it doesn't necessarily require that you have the strongest or, you know, as language skills. Language skills. Mm-hmm. And so I think those dynamics are fascinating to think about where language really is one of the huge barrier for many people. And we have worked with organizations around the D.C. area and across the country who are starting organizations to support migrant food entrepreneurs. And one of the key things, in addition to teaching them culinary skills and you know culinary certification, language lessons are often provided to help them apply for jobs, to help them communicate their skill sets. And then also, you know, with the economic and legal system, particular to the United States, education on uh, those topics as well, where, you know, if you're going to support a migrant community and, and seek to, pro- to help them find job opportunities it's not just about one skill set it's a whole array of barriers that people have to face and so I really admire groups like La Cocina VA for example that's working to really you know create opportunity for for people who who are eager and and ready to work yes yes And so what else are you working on? Before we started taping, you were talking to me about having samples in your demonstrations. So tell me a little bit about that program. Yeah, so before I mentioned that I was working on the food exhibition, so I've been here at the museum since the summer of 2017, and that was the last year of my PhD program in history at Duke University. And I I worked on the food exhibition, but another major part of my job is to be the host and historian for our live cooking demonstration series here at the museum. And what many people may not know is that we do in fact have this beautiful, fully outfitted 
demonstration kitchen stage in the heart of the Museum of American History. And we do a monthly program called Cooking Up History, where we invite a guest chef to come to the museum and spend an hour with me on stage. And we prepare recipes, maybe it's one, maybe it's three, that speak to a particular theme or topic or event in US history. And this year, we've chosen an annual theme to kind of organize all of our programs. And that aligns with the Pan Smithsonian uh, you know, year of woman. So we are celebrating the 19th amendment, the ratification and the hundred years of the woman's right to vote. And all of our programming with on the cooking demonstration stage this year will one, feature women chefs and two, shed light on different aspects of women's experiences in the US, including women's suffrage. So for example, in March coming up on Friday, March 27th, we are going to do an entire Cooking Up History program about women's suffrage cookbooks. The history of them, why they were published, for example. To and raise... these are community cookbooks. Yes, yes, exactly. They fit into the larger um, category. Yes, yes, the beautiful, complex, wonderful category of community cookbooks. And, you know, these were a way to raise money for the, the cause, but also to spread word about women's suffrage. And what I find interesting and what I've talked about with my colleagues like Paula Johnson is some of the messaging in these cookbooks. And you often see a theme present which would say, you know, women deserve the right to vote, but don't worry, we will continue to cook, we will continue <laughs> to do domestic labor, having the right to vote will, we'll, you know, it's not like we're going to radically change our role as women in many households. Now, one of my colleagues referred to this more as a Trojan horse technique, <laughs> you know, where you go in and say, oh, don't worry, uh, we're going to continue working in the kitchen. But as we know, with various waves of feminism, one of them was very much about getting out, out of, of the, the kitchen. kitchen. And so we're going to talk a little bit about those dynamics. And we're going to have a curator in political history here at the museum, Lisa, Lisa Kathleen, to come and talk about her work with women's suffrage, because we have a new exhibition opening up in March called Creating Icons. And it's the icons of women's suffrage, those suffragettes, those activists who are out there fighting for our rights very publicly, risking, risking themselves and risking public retaliation to promote women's rights. So I'm really looking forward to that program. Another one I'll mention is the one we just had on Friday with Tony Tipton Martin, the food journalist, mm -hmm. most known for the Jemima Code, but also her recently released cookbook, Jubilee, Two Centuries of African American Cooking. And she came to talk about her experiences as a researcher and as a writer in uncovering uh, physical copies of 400 black authored cookbooks in the United States and the Caribbean writ large and how these cookbooks together tell a very complex story, a very rich story of African-American cuisine that extends beyond soul food and extends beyond the South because Tony Tipton Martin grew up in California to a middle, upper middle class black family and her experiences out there cooking with vegan food, often cooking Mexican-American and Mexican-influenced dishes, um, seeing influence from Asia, for example. Her experiences growing up uh, 
with food were so different than colleagues that she met who grew up in South Carolina or who were growing up in Chicago and were part of the diaspora of the Great Migration out of the American South. And so her story just created more nuance and she shared that with our audience members. And yes, we did for the first time try uh, sampling in our museum, a little tricky because like I said, the demo stage is in the heart of the museum. So our beautiful objects that are part of the national collection are surrounding the stage and we want to protect them. But we had measures in place where trash cans were available, staff were on hand, and we sampled Benny wafers and made those during the demonstration, talked about West African influences throughout the United States on our cuisine, but also talked about the culture that Tony Tipton Martin grew up with, uh, which was a culture of luncheons and parties and celebrations around food and the Benny wafer as a beautiful cracker or biscuit to serve with dips and spreads as community members came together to celebrate birthdays, baptisms, you name it. So it was a great program and I'm looking forward to our other demos throughout the year. How did the people who were participating as visitors to the museum react to having a sample? So I, <laughs> I'm i really happy to say I think people were eager because we have done surveys of visitor experiences where we ask people who attend our demos to you know, provide feedback. And the most common feedback that we receive from visitors is, please provide samples. <laughs> so I think our audience members were really excited to have that opportunity. We did, like I said, had the Benny wafer. That was fairly simple, and we chose a very simple recipe because we knew we wanted to experiment with sampling. But I and hope you probably didn't have wet Exactly. But we're hoping in the future that we can expand that, that we can expand the opportunities for our visitors to have a multi-sensory experience because we want to create more participation. But it's hard to do in a museum where you can have up to 20,000 visitors a day. Exactly. Uh, We want to kind of provide that experience to those who actually attend the demos and that can arrange that can range between 100 and 300 people Uh, so we're still experimenting but I hope this is the a step in the right direction to a much more I would say I don't know if I'd go elaborate but a much more interesting and innovative way of tasting and smelling and and enjoying food beyond just the story but the food itself. The food itself yes. I I, want to ask you a little bit more about the uh, community cookbooks and the suffragette cookbooks that were written with the idea of raising money for the movement. I think it's quite interesting that at that time, still, this was the way women were raising money, was to do something around food Mm -hmm. and their recipes and and whatever. The, The ones that you use as examples are they printed? Are they handwritten that are then copied? How are they put together? So the cookbook that we're drawing the most inspiration from for our demonstration on March 27 is the Washington Women's Cookbook. And this was published in 1908. It is part of the political history collection here at the Museum of American History. And I just had the chance to look at it for the first time last week with the help of Lisa Kathleen. And this is a hardcover bound cookbook. So it's not spiral, oh, it's wow. not a pamphlet. Mm-hmm. It, you know, it is a a book. A properly bound book. And what I found so 
interesting about it, it is a compilation of recipes provided by various women. Their names, if it was attributed by a person, the name is included near the recipe. But then what's also interesting is they have entire chapters written about outdoor survival and cooking outdoors, written not by a woman, but by a man. For example, the husband of one of the women who contributed to the cookbook. And then there's an entire chapter on sailing foods out on the ocean. And it's, again, contributed by a, a male chef who had cooked on ships for his entire life. And so you see this interesting juxtaposition of, you know, Mrs. So-and-so's rare bit stew next to sailors' seafood, you know, seafood soup on, sh on board the ship. So it's, a, it's an interesting dynamic there in terms of gender and also in terms of cooking in general. But it obviously shows that there were men who were supporting the movement, yes. which is an, a nice thing to see mm -hmm. in, in the cookbook, and, as well as the participation by groups of people, which I think is also pretty interesting. I love community cookbooks, personally. I just think the things that you can learn are so amazing because other cookbooks reflect a person or a restaurant or something like that. But these things are such a product of a community. Oh, definitely. And, you know, in addition to the recipes and the how to cook outdoor guide, <laughs> there were also essays at the back of this book about the cause, about women's suffrage, written by men and women. And, you know, so there was substantial 10 page long essays as to why women deserve the right to vote, what they're doing to acquire the right to vote, how someone can support the cause. And so there is a very definitive outlined message. You know, this isn't, this isn't super subtle. There was, there was purpose behind this. And mm -hmm. that's what I really like about these cookbooks. Yes, they have recipes, but they contain so much more in terms of the essay content and, and you know, stories about the contributors. So I just find it fascinating. And I can't wait to spend more of this week really getting into the nitty gritty of those essays, of the recipes, and, and try to think, okay, what recipe do we want to make on stage to represent that time period. I mean, this is 1908. So, you know, are we going to look at maybe foods that might have been served at a women's luncheon that might have been talking about uh, women's suffrage and sharing those, those talking points? Or do we want to go a, a different route? And we don't know yet. And it was still 12 more years yeah. before the amendment was adopted. So that's pretty early on and there must have been more cookbooks and other things to raise money in between. Were there bake sales and things like that? So I haven't had the chance to do enough research yet to get a sense of the landscape of the different kinds of uh, fundraising opportunities. But knowing the time period, I would not be surprised if bake sales, luncheons, even church gatherings, I mean, it really depends on the kind of community you were in, but to use communal spaces that were already at the center of these communities, like a church or a public market, to host a meeting or a rally to spread the word. So I'll have to keep researching into that. I know scholars have done a tremendous amount of research. I have a 
book, uh, a pile of books, I'm almost a mile high in my office to dive into. And so hopefully I'll have an answer for everyone come March 27th. Right, which is just around the corner. Exactly. Well, so having been here and worked on various projects, what would be your dream project if you could create one all by yourself? Oh, my goodness. I mean, I know all these things are group efforts. They're never just individual. But if you could do one, what would it be? So I have to talk. I actually am so lucky to say that I'm in the midst right now of a dream project or a version of a dream project. So many years ago, Liz, when I was a research fellow with the museum, you had introduced me to a woman named Lena Richard, or the story of a woman named Lena Richard, who was a tremendously popular African-American chef in New Orleans in the 30s and 40s. And she has a a self-published and then a published cookbook by Houghton Mifflin, New Orleans cookbook, in 1939, and then went on to be one of the first pioneers in food television with a show about her cookbook premiering on WDSU-TV in 1950. And as you know, I did an exhibition at the Southern Food and Beverage Museum on her story back in 2012. And I've been so eager to share her story. And you had a blog. And I had a blog that I worked on with my mom, using her cookbook and and preparing some recipes and sharing insights and techniques. It's Lena Richard at blogspot.com. It still exists. (laughs) Um, Or it might be Lena Richard, Pioneer in Food TV, but a Google search will lead you there soon enough. But I've been really eager to share her story, not just with the New Orleans community um, and visitors to New Orleans, but a much broader national audience. And so come April of this year, uh, I am working on an exhibition called Only One in the Room with a team of curators about women business achievers who, despite the prejudice based on gender, sexuality, race, ethnicity, and religious beliefs were able to travel down a very difficult path to be leaders in their industries or innovators and who often discovered that they were the only woman or the only woman of color in the boardroom or on the TV set or, you know, TV studio set. And so Richard's story will be part of that That's very exhibition exciting. case. And I'm just so eager be- to share that story because she was so tenacious. I mean, for those of you who've read about her, she was an incredibly successful caterer. She trained at the Fannie Farmer Cooking School in Boston. And as a woman of color in the Jim Crow South, she had an unusual amount of mobility to move within New Orleans, but to train outside of the South. She was a guest chef. She was recruited to cook at the Burden Bottle Inn in New York. She was recruited to cook uh, for the Rockefeller Foundation in Colonial Williamsburg. She was moving throughout the country, pursuing a professional career as a renowned chef at a time when many women of color were confined to domestic labor because of all these prejudices. And so seeing her story and seeing and uncovering her story, not uncovering, but working with other scholars who have been documenting this story for many, many years, you know, I can't imagine a more perfect place to share her story with the nation than here at the Museum of American History, because it is a story that is so relevant, I think, to themes that are so pertinent today uh, as we continue to investigate 
discrimination and the legacies of slavery, the legacies of legal discrimination against communities of color and women, you know, years and years after major decisions, like major legal decisions. So the impacts are still there. The barriers to entry are still there. And Lena Richard will be one of eight women who we hope become role models for visitors who come to our museum, especially young people and young women, to see that these women achieved success on their own terms as best as they could and really overcame so many difficulties to do so. So that's kind of my dream project. I would also say I am incredibly passionate about the history of street food in the United States. My book project will be on New Orleans and it's a study of the the city of New Orleans through its public food culture you know, 1780 to 1950. And that's really street food vendors, the public markets, the consumption of food out of doors. How did you decide on 1780 as the beginning time? So that's just a rough time. But what I'm going to show is during the Spanish colonial period, the regulation by the city government of food vending, specifically butchers. So Prior to, there was a lot of unregulated street food vending. Uh, Meats and fishes were sold around the city center. But you see in most cities that have Western European influence and others around the world, this very strong concern about public health, public safety, and the regulation of the sale of food so that consumers would be protected and so that the city government could glean Taxes. Taxes, stall rentals from butchers, fishmongers, and whatnot. And so it's really, it starts kind of when the Spanish colonial authority said, all right, we need to take the local food economy of New Orleans and we need to start regulating it and we need to centralize it and place it somewhere where we can keep an eye on it, where we can profit from it, and where our consumers feel that they're in a safe space. Now, as we know, Liz, (laughs) there's the ideal that one tries to create through the law, and then there is the lived reality, which is that most of the time, people continue to live outside of the law, and they weren't necessarily abiding by those regulations that the city government was trying to place on food. And as we know, food isn't easily controllable. It moves throughout cities very in haphazard ways, but not even haphazard. It was moving throughout throughout cities by gardeners who were selling produce very purposefully with an entrepreneurial entrepreneurial spirit who were trying to make a living. And I love that story of tenacity because many of these vendors were women, women of color, recent migrants who didn't have access and didn't have easy access to property and didn't have easy access to full citizenship because citizenship was defined by white men who are property owners. And so they had to dwell in this world outside of that full sense of belonging. And I look at my dissertation at how they did that through food entrepreneurship and how they defined a new kind of agency and power through food. And it's not just about economic security or, you know, not just about setting prices. It's also about building community. For example, with enslaved women, when you get to the antebellum period in New Orleans, many of the uh, vendors, a majority of them, were enslaved African women who often were sent to the market by slave owners to sell produce, you know, surplus produce from the plantations. Some women 
had the freedom on Sundays to go to the French market, as it was known at that time, to sell surplus produce from their garden plots. And it was, there's descriptions from the 1820s, 1830s of people who visited New Orleans and just described how there were so many women sitting on the ground with their wares laid out in front of them in baskets and the kind of cacophony of their conversations with each other were incredibly notable. Like these weren't people sitting in silence. These were women, you know, talking and discussing in public. They were, they were sharing food stories. They were talking about family. And, you know, this is all under the umbrella of the, the horrifying conditions of slavery. Yet they found in the marketplace a place to, to convene publicly and to, and, and that was powerful at a time when there was so much fear about enslaved persons being in large groups in cities for fear of slave insurrection, but the market was sort of this exception to the rule. And I also think there's a gendered component there too, with women being the primary vendors, a carryover from West Africa where women were the primary vendors. And so I think that's powerful and there's something there. And that's what I really want to start exploring in this book project that I'm working on is these dynamics of people who were seemingly disenfranchised who, who didn't have access to full citizenship, but found ways to create equally powerful modes of belonging in their own communities around food. And who had some control. Yes, exactly. Yes. Thank you very much. I know that you're very busy, and it's really great to have your time today. You have been listening to Tip of the Tongue on the Nitty Grits Network of the National Food and Beverage Foundation. Visit us at our studio at the Southern Food and Beverage Museum in New Orleans. You can find us and subscribe wherever you listen to your podcasts. I'm Liz Williams. Thanks for listening.